Well, let me welcome you again to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Thank you for being here this morning. If you would please open your Bibles, not to the book of Proverbs, that's where we have been and will return in two weeks' time, but rather open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Like many churches, we are going through a uh, post-pandemic dynamic in the life of the church. Folks are returning to corporate worship slowly and uh, ever more slowly returning to serving the church by uh, volunteering of time and energy to serve the church body. And we are going to spend two Sundays looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here we find Paul describing the work of the life of the church, the church, uh, one in spirit, but diverse as regards to uh, the members of the body that are serving uh, that body. So this morning we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And all the while, I'll be encouraging you to serve this particular congregation. We are, in fact, preparing for the many ministries that we have restarting in the fall. We're excited to have uh, Ryan Hamilton over youth ministry and Sarah uh, Southard over our children's ministry. We're excited for them to be working together. They uh, need a great number of volunteers for our various ministries in the fall. And so uh, we will be asking you for these couple of Sundays to volunteer, find out what those needs are, but to serve this particular body. And our motivation won't be uh, a a ministerial admonition, but rather a God's holy scripture. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Little theologians, I'd like for you this morning to draw a picture of a a boat, uh, but not a sailboat, a boat with big, powerful engines hidden away someplace in the belly that make that boat move. You'll hear that in the introduction to this sermon. But first, let's pray, and then we'll read this passage together. Please pray with me. Our Holy Father, thank you for making yourself known to us. You not only speak, you speak loudly, persistently, pervasively. How does that happen? By your Holy Spirit. Father, would you speak loudly to us by your Spirit, and deeply as well, deep in our hearts. Thank you for making yourself known. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, For the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of our Lord. If you've traveled to Seattle, uh, you will know that you can go to Pier 50 uh, right off of downtown and you can take a water taxi to uh, West Seattle, in fact, to uh, Seacrest Park. And uh, one day, my daughter and I did exactly that. Uh, I'll admit that it was a bit of boredom, weren't sure what exactly to do that day. Uh, So uh, there we are at Pier 50 waiting to catch the water ferry to take us across Elliott Bay. Now people do this because from Seacrest Park, on the opposite side of downtown Seattle, the view over Elliott Bay is astounding. You can see not just the city, but you can see the reflection of the city in the bay. And so, uh, while many commuters will take this route, Linnea and I weren't commuters. We're just in it for the view. And this ferry is a 100-foot vessel that can carry nearly 300 people on two decks. And what stands out to me, and what I want you to discern in this is it takes a lot of power to move a vessel that size. What stands out to me is the effect of two 1,800 horsepower engines that you never actually see as you take this ferry across Elliott Bay. But in the basement of that ferry are 3,600 horsepower grinding up the water to move it forward. You can hear the deep throb of the engines everywhere on the vessel. You can feel this rumble under your feet, in the handrails, in the chairs. From the upper deck, you can watch the water foam into frenzied action as it comes out of the back of that ferry. You can even smell the hot gases. As the MV Doc Maynard, which is the name of this water taxi, uh, in this very boat, as you make your way from one part of Seattle to another part of Seattle, you see and feel and hear the power of that machine. And when it arrives at Seacrest Park, if you didn't notice the sound, you'll notice its absence. Because it just stops. You know, the life of the church of Jesus Christ, that life is a life that is compelled and empowered and moving forward by the Holy Spirit. We can think of it this way. The Holy Spirit is always rumbling, always churning, always pushing. This is true even in a Presbyterian church, which is where you are this morning. The Holy Spirit is not just working quietly in the basement, quietly in heaven, and it's not just working inside individuals, but the Holy Spirit is making its presence known, making His presence known through the rumbling, the making of great noise, because she's leading, or He's leading the church. 
And the Holy Spirit is leading the church as she slices through a body of water called the world. And this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is actually very practical, very straightforward in many ways. One of the ways we see the Holy Spirit at work is through the gifts of people being, being used to serve the church body. Serving others in the church may sound simple. It may appear purely organizational. And it may seem to work in just pragmatic ways. But serving others in the church is not like that, not as understood by the Holy Bible. Serving others in the church is far more powerful than that. What this passage here tells us is that Jesus has guaranteed that his body would move forward in the world under the power of the Holy Spirit. He has guaranteed that his body, his church, would move forward in the world under the power of the Holy Spirit. And and when we look at this passage, I want us to see the Holy Spirit doing four things. The, The Holy Spirit, first of all, is public. We need to call that out. The Holy Spirit is being manifest in the life of the church, revealed in the life of the church. That's the first thing. The second thing is Paul wants us to understand the Holy Spirit leads the church. Not waiting, leads. Finally, the Holy Spirit is the very power of the church. And then, finally, the Holy Spirit works in diverse ways in the church. Public, leads, empowers, and works in diverse ways. We're going to look at two verses, but they're not two verses that are back-to-back. Verse 1 and verse 3 of our passage tells us that the Holy Spirit is public. You see, when Paul says in verse 1 there, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, he's acknowledging that this church in Corinth has asked him a question before about the Holy Spirit. He isn't simply changing the subject in 12 verse 1. He's responding to an issue in the life of the church. He's helping a congregation navigate various issues in the entire letter, but we're unsure what he's helping them with here in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1. But there's something about the Holy Spirit that the people are curious about. And so they've asked Paul about it. And we don't know the specific question. But we know that it's something about how the Holy Spirit works in a public way. You see, Paul says, now concerning spiritual, well, he says, things or people or gifts. That word after the word spiritual in the ESV, it's a little hard to define. I think that gifts, spiritual gifts is the right translation, but it's not clear. There's a quality of the Holy Spirit that Paul has been asked about, and Paul is writing to address that question. And that quality may be the the gifts of the people in the church. How are they gifted? John Calvin says that uh, what they're concerned about is is how people in the church are are adorned by the Holy Spirit, uh, dressed up, as it were, by the Holy Spirit. And that's their question, and Paul is writing to address that question. And what he's saying is he's saying that the Holy Spirit makes his presence evident in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit is not silent, uh, so the Holy Spirit, in fact, rumbles. There is this Holy Spirit and various manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, There is a vibration in the handrail because of the Holy Spirit. And the church in Corinth is asking about those vibrations. But vibrate the Holy Spirit most certainly does. These manifestations are what the Corinthians see happening in their church. And they ask Paul. And they've asked him at this point in this letter... 
And Paul responds, now concerning these. Let me jump down to verse 3. You see there that Paul uses a rather strange example about someone who says that Jesus is accursed and someone who says that Jesus is Lord. I think that verse 1 and verse 3 are uh, attached together because this is the very evidence that Paul will admit that the Holy Spirit makes himself known. Rumble, vibrations. The Holy Spirit is not meant to be invisible, working in the background and not noticed by anyone. Paul agrees the Holy Spirit is supposed to be present. How is it present? Well, Paul uses a hypothetical example of the kind of people uh, that might respond to Jesus, some favorably and some unfavorably. Now, the point of Paul is not to say that Corinthian believers here in your midst are people who have lied in their church membership interview. They don't really believe in Jesus. They, in fact, curse Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that these are hypothetical examples. And the point of Paul is that sincere profession of faith in Jesus is always a display of the Holy Spirit. You've not professed faith in Jesus because you are so much smarter than others. You've uh, read the Bible more carefully. You've studied a history of philosophy uh, more uh, uh, successfully. If you say Jesus is Lord, and that's a sincere profession of faith, that is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit is public. A sincere profession of faith is actually an example of those 3,600 horsepower motors rumbling and rumbling, and nobody can say yes to Jesus without the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit in that profession of faith is making himself known. The Holy Spirit is public. It's the first thing Paul says. And uh, verse 2, which is uh, nestled there in between verses 1 and 3, uh, this is Paul saying that not only is the Holy Spirit public, manifested in the life of the church, known by those in the life of the church, but the Holy Spirit is leading the life of the church. Look with me at verse 2. You see that Paul asked many in the church to reflect upon their pre-conversion lives. You should know that this church was planted maybe as few as five years ago. It's filled with first-generation believers. They remember very well what their pre-conversion life is like. Some of you here this morning, you remember very well what your pre-conversion life was like. And Paul says that the Bible has a paradigm for understanding the kind of life that you once lived before you said yes to Jesus. You see... The Bible says that you were the kind of person that uh, worshipped some god. You worshipped maybe multiple gods. You were the kind of person that maybe you uh, venerated some kind of a political ruler. Many in Corinth venerated some Roman Caesar. And Paul says that in your pre-converted life, uh, you may have venerated your homeland. Your nation was the very center of your existence. Paul says that in your pre-converted life, you uh, maybe thought that you were religiously unaffiliated, but the Bible never understood you as being religiously unaffiliated in your pre-converted life. Some, uh, some of you actually worshipped the good life itself. You worshipped your career. You worshipped your big house. You worshipped your shiny, pretty kids. But Paul doesn't care. You see, what the Bible says about a life without Jesus is a life that is lived chasing after some kind of idol. 
That's what he says in verse 2. You weren't living. You were being led. Somehow, some way, you were being led. You see, see there in, uh, uh, this, uh, in verse 3, Paul says that you were being led and led astray two times. Every moment of life without following the one true God is being led by some kind of idol. In fact, you may be a part of a grand society of like-minded people, a social organization that has a great website, that does tons of good, that includes all the right people. That may be a social organization that you are a part of. But if you do not have Jesus Christ, that social organization is a collection of people chasing after idols. Who is doing that leading? You know, Paul and uh, uh, Paul seems to be saying that uh, it's none other than Satan who is doing that leading. You certainly aren't being led by Jesus. But what is he really saying in verse 3? What's his point? A Christian people and the Christian church is not led by an idol, is not led by Satan. But Christian individuals are led, and they're led by the Holy Spirit, which has enabled them to say yes to the gospel. And the Christian church is led, led by the Holy Spirit, not astray, but according to the will of Jesus. In just a few, a few verses, uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is manifested in the life of the church. And he says that the Holy Spirit is leading the church, not taking a back seat to anyone. The third thing he says in verses 4 through 7 is that the Holy Spirit empowers. He seems to have been building up to this. What happens in verse 4 is that Paul now channels his energies into discussing the giftedness of individuals in the life at Corinth. You see, he says this, now there are a variety of gifts. And while the word gift is really missing in verse 1, the Greek doesn't have gift in verse 1. But now Paul's getting specific. And here in verse 4, we do have the word gift. But I want us to see here that Paul is not speaking in specific terms. Just as he used a hypothetical example in verse 3, here in verse 4, Please don't think that Paul is trying to dial into a known skill set in the Corinthian church. He's actually speaking in very broad terms beginning in verse 4. In your church, there's a variety of gifts, Paul says. In your church, there's a variety of services, Paul says. And in your church, there are a variety of activities. So says Paul, acknowledging the Corinthian church. You see, he's not attempting to label each and every gift and service and activity as if he is codifying the list of what a church ought to look like. On the surface, Paul is boasting about the church in Corinth by saying, my, how rich your ministry is. This church in Corinth seems to be a mega church with all kinds of things happening in it. Paul uses these three nouns, that the church is filled with personal gifts and with uh, abilities and uh, services and uh, activities. I mean, Paul is just gushing over the power of the church in Corinth. Let me quickly tell you what he's doing. In this church, it is true that there are many gifts and abilities. And in this church, it is true that there are many services that are happening. That word that he uses for services there probably refers to very small and almost invisible ministries of love to one another. It's where we get our word deacon, that word for services. There's gifts in the church or services in the church. 
And there's activities in the church. You see that there, that third noun? In this church, there are activities, uh, energized actions that are beyond the abilities of any one person alone. Now, see, Paul is being very clear here that none of these nouns, gifts, services, or activities, are intended for selfish purposes. Do you see that in verse 7? Whatever these gifts, services, and activities are, they're used for the common good. Everything that he's identifying in the Corinthian church, it's intended for everyone else. Does anyone here have a trophy room at home? A man cave, perhaps? What Paul is saying in verse 7 is he's saying that nobody gets to sit at home in their trophy room and stare at their trophies or diplomas or resume or bank account. Every gift, every service, every activity, it's meant for others. Again, Hear me when I say this. Paul, he's not trying to capture uh, every gift, every service, every activity. Many many people read this passage in that way, but he's not describing a megachurch that has all of these things going on. He's actually describing every normal Christian church. Every church is hyper-engaged by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see Paul saying in verse 6, it is the same God who empowers them all. And Paul's not trying, again, to create a catalog of gifts and services and activities. What is he doing? He's boasting about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is empowering all of these activities and more. In the basement of this chancel, right underneath my feet, there's this great big hollow space that has uh, pipes and uh, ducts and junction boxes and probably a few Christmas decorations. Right here. I've been down there before. It's strange to be down there. I don't care for it. But imagine everything that's down there filled with horsepower. Filled with engine after engine after engine. And it's running. It's not idle. You ought to feel that vibration all the way up into the balcony. The the gifts in the church, the services in the church, the activities in the church, they're broad, they're all over the place. And they're all empowered by the Holy Spirit. Each of us ought to feel the vibrations through our uncushioned pew. It would be inescapable. And Paul says that that's happening, and it's happening right now. You hear the engine. It's happening right now. This is a church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And every gift and service and activity of the life of this church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we are all, if we profess faith in Jesus Christ, a part of that work. Now, let me make one more comment before moving on. If you profess faith in Jesus, you are not untouched by this. Did you hear that? This is so important. The gifts of service, activity, all of these are touched by the Holy Spirit's power. And you are touched by the Holy Spirit's power. You're not touched by the Holy Holy Spirit's power as you only receive these gifts, receive these services, receive these activities. No, you're not merely a recipient. You're active. You individually have gifts and services and activities to offer. You are not empty, brother and sister. 
This is true of everyone who professes faith in Jesus of every age, every educational background, every gender, every ethnicity, every duration of history in the life of this church from our founding to a week ago. Now look at verse 6. This is present in everyone. If you doubt me that you have anything to offer this body, verse 6, in everyone. It's equally clear in the Greek. And if that's not convincing enough, then look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. To each. Now, part of me wants to say to you, see, you have no excuse to serve. As your pastor, I feel that temptation. Ta-da, you have no excuse. But I don't believe I have Holy Spirit authority to say what Paul is not saying here. That's not what Paul is saying, you have no excuse. What Paul is saying is this, the Holy Spirit has already empowered you to serve. That's what he's saying. He's not guilting you. He is reminding you of the treasures you have in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is doing. And I want to echo that. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, if you call him your Lord, the Holy Spirit has already empowered you to serve with your gifts, with your service, and with your activities. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. You are empowered to serve that church. That rumbling sound that I asked you to imagine is not just coming from beneath the pews. It's coming from your own heart. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus and the Spirit has empowered you to serve here. Listen to that rumbling. Now fourthly, verses 8 through 11, the Holy Spirit works in diverse ways. It does sadden me that so much debate in this passage, verses 8 and 10 in particular, is wasted. The arguments all seem to revolve around whether or not these gifts can be expected in the life of the church today. And I want us to understand what Paul's focus is. Paul's focus is not the specific nature of each of the nine individual gifts he's about to list. In fact, only one of them technically is called a gift. These nine things that he lists may be services, they may be activities. Paul's not trying to give us a catalog of gifts to expect in uh, every church. Instead, he's doing this. He is focusing on the diversity of these gifts. Whatever they are, even though they, uh, they may seem very different and hard to understand and they seem miraculous and ought to be unusual, uh, whatever they are, they come from the same origin. They come from the Holy Spirit. You can look at verse 8, the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. That seems to be teaching of some sort. Uh, in verse uh, 9, we begin to see these three attached together that feel pretty supernatural. Uh, faith, you see that? And not just a, a faith, but there's gift of healing, and then there's uh, mention of miraculous gifts. I, uh, I will venture to say that that is confusing. What is Paul talking about? It's not faith to believe in the gospel, but it's a particular kind of unshakable faith that seems to be present in the church. 
and the gifts of healing. It sounds like a, like a superhero ability, doesn't it? But we are actually called today, James 5 verse 16, to pray for healing. So on some level, we're counting on that healing. And maybe there are people in the church who especially lead us in trusting the healing, the healing power uh, that God may or may not have for us. And the same thing with regards to the uh, miraculous gifts uh, there in verse 10. It feels pretty uh, supernatural, doesn't it? But maybe not. Uh, I can't imagine Paul assumes that miracles are present everywhere in the life uh, of the church, but he certainly doesn't want us to discount uh, miracles. There were more miracles in the life of Jesus than in the life of Moses. And why wouldn't there be more miracles in the life of Jesus than the life of the church today? But Paul says later that miracles are a particular gift of the apostle, but our God is sovereign. He knows how to work both with nature and against nature. In the last, the last four verses, beginning at verse 10, they all seem to be about, be about communication, don't they? Uh, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits. Uh, I wonder if prophecy is, as the reformers thought, more about the message of the gospel. Prophecy is about teaching. And I also wonder if the ability to distinguish between spirits is uh, this a special kind of wisdom, knowledge of the world around us. I, I don't feel ashamed at all saying to you that I wonder if C.S. Lewis wasn't a figure like that, an ability to discern spiritual realities all around us. Read the screw tape letters and wonder that to yourself. And then this matter of uh, tongues... Uh, I understand tongues and the interpretation of tongues is much less clear, but uh, Paul did say in, uh, later in 1 Corinthians uh, that uh, tongues are something that are supposed to be uh, submitted to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul says, uh, look, when tongues happen, uh, they need to be measured, weighed according to Scripture. Uh, scripture trumps whatever tongues may mean. And I understand that this doesn't answer every question. I, I, I get this. And, and, and maybe if you want, we can talk later about how scholars understand this list of nine things. But what these verses are teaching us is this. The Holy Spirit is not limited to a narrow qualification of gifts, services, and activities. Do you remember the Swiss Army knife? Is that just something out of my generation? I remember coveting the Swiss Army knife. I wanted one so badly I could taste it. I had friends that had a Swiss Army knife. I did not. But I got one in junior high, and I celebrated by carving up my brother's dresser. And it was almost immediately taken away from me. Just imagine that on the corner of the dresser. Almost immediately it was taken away from me. I didn't see again for years. Not even joking. Isn't it true how often we elevate one tool in the Swiss Army knife over others in the life of the church? Am I stretching the metaphor too much? Isn't it strange how we elevate missionaries and pastors to places they don't actually belong, nor did they ever ask for many of them? The Holy Spirit works in a variety of ways. There are a variety of tools in a Swiss Army knife. You know, Paul here lists nine ways, not because he's trying to authenticate every church, no, he's trying to get the point across that's right there in verse 11. The Holy Spirit appoints to each one individually as he wills. Paul's not listing nine things that there would be never 10 or 11, just the opposite. He's telling us that in the life of the church, 
There are cutting tools, there are pointing tools, there are screwdriving kinds of tools, uh, there are scissors, there are files, there are spoons, there are forks. The Holy Spirit provides a diversity of gifts and a diversity of services and a diversity of abilities. I want to tie this together with a very easy illustration, but know this, the Holy Spirit is made known in the life of the church, public, and the Holy Spirit leads the life of the church, and the Holy Spirit empowers the giftedness in the church, and the Holy Spirit shows himself in diverse ways in the life of the church. Jesus has guaranteed that his body would move forward in the world under the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's what I want to finish with. We do tend, don't we, to think that the Holy Spirit works only in one way, dramatically. Why is that? There's no evidence for this at all in Scripture. We've actually fabricated this. The Holy Spirit only works in dramatic ways. Some of you have felt that your personal testimony is uh, not quite dramatic enough. I'm so sorry that you feel that way. That is a horrible feeling. The Bible tells us just the opposite. In fact, how does the Bible tell us that a person becomes a Christian? How is their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh? How are they transferred from the domain of death and darkness and eternal damnation into the kingdom of God with eternal life and guaranteed, secured victory? How are they adopted into God's family as his own precious children with whom he is delighted? How are they made recipients of all of the benefits that flow out of redemption? How does any of this happen? This is so dramatic. Surely it must be dramatic. How does this happen? How does it happen indeed? Through the hearing of the gospel of grace. Words. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through very ordinary means. Let me just think of partaking of the sacraments. A humble ceremony in the life of the church with common bread and common juice and wine. Common. And yet coming in faith, we're nourished. Think about this moment right here. Do you think that you simply uh, set your alarm, uh, got up, got dressed, brushed your teeth, and showed up? No. We're here by the sovereign purposes of God that we might hear and believe in the gospel. Think about prayer. Prayer, it's just a conversation with God. So ordinary. And yet all of these ordinary expressions are expressions of nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I are called to serve the church. For all of those who profess faith in Jesus, we actually ought to encourage one another to do exactly that, to respond to the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in this church. The church of Jesus, she's made to rumble. She's made to growl. She's made to whine and to push and to shove and to cleave apart an ocean. She's made to do that. John Owen goes so far as to say that the Holy Spirit brings to the church powers that the world doesn't know. Powers from the world to come. Can you feel her? She is rumbling. You are the church. Serve that church. Would you join me in prayer? Our Holy Father, we thank you for your means. We didn't choose this. It's not how we would uh, run the church. But you have. 
through the Holy Spirit, would you govern and lead and drive forward this church as you see fit? Amen.